Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. And it will be a nice day to be out in the garden today. Perfect. Yeah, it won't Not be too, too hot. hot. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely it'll be, perfect. It'll be lovely. There's a little drizzle as I came down this morning, but that'll all have cleared by the time everybody gets up. Ah, yeah, but it means the weeds pull out a bit easier. There is always that. Yes. But I think the weeds are still reasonably easy to deal with as long as you are dealing with them. You do have to keep on yeah. top of it at yeah. the moment. Th- They're growing like crazy. Yeah. And things are starting to to go to seed. Oh, so yes. So if you don't get on top of them now, uh, what was the old saying? Uh, um, uh, you don't weed one year and then you get seed for seven or something. It's, <laughs> I can't remember how the saying went, but it was, yes. It sounds dramatic. It is. And, yeah, well, weeds are like that. That's what weeds are. They, they're clever creatures. That, they're survivors. You know, are survivors. So unless you keep on top of them, they're going to get on top of you, I reckon. Absolutely. So yes, the, the ground cress is going to seed everywhere at the moment and the and the cleavers are starting to form seeds oh, on them. And, yes. You know, so all those ones that, you know, have a serious zest for life yes. uh, are all moving fast. So, exactly. Yes, we need to be on top of our weeds at the moment. Yes, not to mention the oxalis, which uh, has gone absolutely crazy. The trouble with oxalis now, it's almost getting too late to do anything about it, though, because the, the bulbous ones are going to start dying down. Mm. Um, and, well, we all know we shouldn't dig this stuff anyway because all you do is spread it around. That's right. But, you know, if you, if you can't see it, you can't deal with it. Mm. And so it'll sit there and it'll pop back up again next week. Of course year. it will. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We have to say a very good morning to Penny Woodward. Hi, Penny. Good morning, Pam and listeners. And... Um, you could be eating the oxalis, couldn't you? Well, you could. You could. But that's a bit <laughs> tedious, I find. Uh, I do like to get my own back on it occasionally. but uh, Just add but, a few leaves to the salad. Yeah, just a few yeah. leaves. Actually, I don't know whether people are aware, but if you dig an oxalis, some of the oxalis species actually have a carrot-like mm. root mm. underneath them, and that's delicious. Mm. It doesn't have any of the oxalic acid in it, so it's not sort of sharp, and it's like celery without strings in. Okay. Well, I, I actually like the sharpness yeah. and, and that's why I, I like yeah. adding oxalates to salads and things. Yeah. Some like, but you're never going to eat like, enough to get no, on top no, of it. No, no. <laughs> but it's, it changes the way you think about it. It's the same way that I was talking about last time with my cleavers. Yes. Yeah. And I actually value it because my chooks adore it. And, yeah. And I'm not on top of it and it is starting to seed. But oh. the chooks like the seeds even better. Yeah. So, yeah. again, yeah, it the seeds it go all over your clothes. The way I think about it. Do they spread it? No. It doesn't no. go. Th- so they actually no. digest they actually- the seeds. So, yeah. 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 Okay. Because my chooks are over my garden bed, so I just move them on to the next garden bed. Oh, okay. And then plant in that garden bed. And I don't have the garden beds full of cleavers. So, okay. no, that definitely doesn't go through them. Oh, that's good. That's so, handy to know. Yeah. yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. But yeah. look, I've always felt that with weeds. I think people are inclined to be a little um, over mean about weeds. I mean, what is prettier than uh, a dandelion seed head? Hmm. So, and Except when the children grab them and blow the seeds straight into my garden bed. But, you know. <laughs> well, they're always going to do that, yeah. Stephen. Uh, but, I but, mean, they're but they're beautiful. But dandelion leaves are fabulous yeah. salad plants, mm. particularly the new ones yeah. as they come as they come through. They're beautiful yeah. in salads, and you know we spend all this time planting stuff. I know we could just be picking our dandelion <laughs> leaves. Yeah. It's true. And, and of course, you can eat other. you can eat ground cress leaves as well. 
and purslane and yeah. nettles and yeah. all uh, those there's things. There's a whole range yes. of them. Oh, yes. Mm. Actually, I've got a lovely ornamental uh, cardamine, which is the genus of yep. all those those plants. Uh, cardamine pretensis floriplina, the double lady smock, and it has these beautiful double mow flowers. And because they're double, it's sterile, so it can't yep. self seed. Uh, but it's got the most fabulous peppery flavour to the okay. foliage. So mm. there you go. Mm. We have to say a very good morning to James Beatty. Good morning, James. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, listeners. How are you? <sighs> You, you must be nearly on holidays. <coughs> last program went to air last night. I finished up in the office uh, yeah, uh, Friday. So, okay. Yeah, so I'm a free man now, free agent. We're, we're, of course, talking about ABC Gardening Australia. Yes, yep. Yes. Um, and, and, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into a few projects in the garden at home okay. this year. Yeah, oh, we might so. have to... Find out a bit more about that. Yes, yes. Well, there's there's been a couple that I've talked about before that you know invariably keep getting pushed back, unfortunately. So, but now that <laughs> maybe it's maybe a lot now's more the spare time. time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I must say, um, last year we were all commenting when we came back in the new year um, that Gardening Australia was really late before it it, it came back. On air last year is it coming back a bit earlier this year? Do you know if they got plans? It, it, it the the date is March, uh, I think mid March sometime. Okay, um, but it was still yet to be confirmed yes. when I left. So, but, right. but it'll be it'll be it'll be it'll be mid March. So, but yeah. I presume you've already filmed a couple of, <coughs> of um, programs. Yeah, quite a bag, quite, so to quite speak. a bit. Seeing as we seeing as we shut down over over Christmas and New Year, um, which is you know, it's kind of it's kind of a bit. A bit backward for a, for a gardening show in Australia yeah, because yes, you, you think you think, you think you would take the break in the winter time. <laughs> yes. Um, so we kind of frantically film as much as we can before the end of the year because usually invariably once we get back in the middle of January and then through February, people's gardens are burnt to a crisp in the temperate regions yes, and they yes. they don't want to have a bar of us. So no, there's, a, there's a small window of opportunity at the end of the year. But it's tricky because you have to look <laughs> as though you're in the right season. That's right. That that. That filming out of season thing is probably the trickiest thing, mm. I reckon, and it can screw with your head a bit throughout the year, especially yes. when you're in the depths of winter and you're trying to, you know, make do that it's early spring. The leaves with the, tr- with the trees without their leaves is kind of a dead giveaway. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's actually the same when you're writing for a magazine, though, because we're I'm working at the moment on the March April edition. Yeah, of right. See that? Oh, that's when you do. It's yeah. a big yeah. lead time, and you yeah. and it's a big lead time, and you need to and when you're trying to take photographs to go with your articles, mm. you've, you know, I was doing that one on pruning lavender and trying to work out. <laughs> This is pruning lavender in autumn that I'm supposed to be doing, so I had to choose something that I knew would still be in flower in autumn right. to, to prune, to use as an example. So, you know, you're constantly having that, to think, That's the think best part about things. being well in advance. So if you can be 12 months, months. in advance, yeah. then, then you're that's fine. That's perfect. Well, yeah. prepared. But that's really very planned, and I'm not that organised. Well, I don't think most of the magazines are no, either. I mean, I write for your garden magazine, um, and... We haven't decided what my article will be for uh, the autumn edition yet. No. Um, no. I mean, I've sent them some suggestions on what mm. I'd like to write. Mm. Uh, they may well come back with something <coughs> completely unrelated to all those mm. subjects that they want me to write. I don't know yet. Um, and so I've got to hope like hell that I've got file photographs and things that I can use. Although a lot of these magazines have huge libraries that they can pull in as well. So, you know, I often get in touch with them and say, look, if you've got a picture of such and such in spring foliage or whatever, mm. uh, and they'll go through their library, find one, even if I haven't got it. Yeah. So, right. You know, so that can help, yep. although you don't get paid for those ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it still at least completes the article. Yeah, well, it does it? complete the article, yeah. yes. is actually, I think, in the one that must be coming out almost 
any time now, your garden. I'm actually I've done an article on pretty edibles, so it almost gets back to what yeah. we're talking about, except not the weedy pretty edibles, but the <laughs> the, the things that can be pretty garden plants that, that are edible you can as still eat. yeah, yeah. That, you've, that have got some yeah. edibility. Mm-hmm. So I think I've picked mm-hmm. a, a an annual uh, perennial, a shrub and a tree or something. I've tried to sort of yeah. mm-hmm. go over the gamut of the different. Things. So that'll okay. be coming up in the in the summer edition of the yep. Your Garden magazine, which must be out almost any minute. Yep. yep. So, Excellent. There you go. Okay, I'm going to get on to some community announcements because we've got uh, quite a few of them Uh-oh. here. Things yeah. are happening again. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> First up, um, a reminder, we were talking about this last week, that uh, today is the festival opening of the Mullum Mullum Festival. And uh, today is the... Uh, Big Koori Day, so there's going to be all sorts of uh, highlights today. Um, starting off at 10am, there's a walk and talk identifying past Indigenous connections to land. Uh, it goes on to um, to things like musical performances, dance performances. Uh, we've got the official uh, festival opening um and uh, at three o'clock, which I think is going to be fantastic, there's a craft workshop uh, with two uh, Wurundjeri artists and they're going to uh, show a range of Aboriginal crafts such as basket weaving, ochre painting, boomerang, clapstick, spear making and they'll help you to make a start on your own project. So oh, obviously cool. it's, um, there's a lot there for children to be involved with <laughs> as well. Uh, now this uh, festival runs... All of next weekend as well, with each uh, of the two days next weekend having um, the emphasis on um, on uh, local native uh, fauna and flora. Lots of bushwalks. There's a it's a very very comprehensive program. If you want to uh, get hold of a copy of the uh, the full program, so you can choose what to go to, um, you can either go uh, to their website which is mullummullumfestival.org.au and mullum is spelt with double L. So it's mullummullumfestival.org.au or I know that uh, the three local councils which are participating have got copies as do uh, the local libraries in the area. But uh, I really suggest that uh, people would... uh, There's so much on offer and so much to learn. It's just fantastic. And entry to any event is simply a gold coin donation. So it's accessible to everybody. Now, also on today, there is a garden walk. Now, this is to uh, all proceeds uh, going towards continuing the renovations of the Arthurs Creek Mechanics Institute Hall. Now, uh, there'll be four private gardens... One is the Strathewan Community Bushfire Memorial and Blacksmith Tree. There's Strathewan Primary School's award-winning garden, which is just a fantastic garden. Um, Arthur's Creek Primary School's Grade 6 Leadership Project. They've got their official garden opening. And uh, there's another private garden as well. Uh, there'll be Devonshire teas, light lunches, art and craft, raffles, plants for sales. Now, um, the gardens will be open till 5.30, but tickets are available from the Mechanics Institute Hall from 9.30 until 3pm. Now, the cost is adults $20, children are free, and the address of the uh, Institute Hall is 906 Arthurs Creek Road in Arthurs Creek. Melway's reference there is 393B4. Now, uh, our good friends at uh, Open Gardens Victoria have got their last two gardens opening for the year. 
The first one is today, which is Flint Hill. That's at 65 Romsey Road in Wood End. It's open 10 till 4.30. Entry price is $10. Children under 18 are free. Now, um, it's a grand vision begun in the 1930s. Uh, it's matured into one of the great woodland gardens of Australia with magnificent specimen trees, um, bordered by hundreds of majestic rhododendrons, winding walks, there's formal ponds and a lake. Um, it's surrounded by impressive eucalypt parkland with views to Mount Macedon and Hanging Creek. Do you know anything about the garden, Stephen? Actually, I know quite a lot about the garden because uh, about four owners back, it used to belong to the Sisters of Mercy and they had it as a place where they trained young nuns to go off into the leper colonies and things like that. Oh. And my dad and I did a lot of work in that garden when okay. I was a kid. Uh, so I would have only been in my sort of mid-teens at the time and the garden had become seriously overgrown over the years. Uh, Mrs Brooks was the lady who actually set it up in the first place and she was a mad keen rhododendron collector. So she overplanted trees to give lots of shade but then nothing was ever done about them when she passed away so the garden became overgrown so we moved rhododendrons we had uh, uh, loggers come in and take down big conifers and things like that and uh, spent a lot of time in the garden Uh, cleaned out all the ponds they'd all silted up Mm -hmm. Um, and so yeah I had quite a lot to do with that garden way back Um, and uh, it's been through several owners since but the current owner um, has had it for many years now and uh, has certainly brought the garden back to a really high standard so it is it's a beautiful beautiful setting so definitely worth it. If anybody wants to go out for a lovely day, um, whip up to Wood End to Flint Hill because it is a remarkable garden. And so. call into your nursery on the way home. Look, they could. <laughs> <laughs> just just by or, the way. Yeah. Or, or on the way. Or on the or way on up, the way. yes, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind either way round. Okay. Fine. So it's a full 10 acres, the garden yeah, in total. Yeah. So it's, it's big, yeah. yeah. So that address again is 65 Romsey Road in Wood End. Now, the other garden that they have opening is next weekend. And as I mentioned, this is the last garden for the week, for the year uh, for them. They will have more, of course, in the new year. So next weekend, Saturday and Sunday, they've got a green sanctuary in Fitzroy opening. Now, um, this is uh, the home of uh, Wonder Wings fairy shop creator Anne Atkins and as they mentioned, it's full of surprises. Um, she's transformed a derelict rooming house into a fascinating home with a garden. Uh, now, the garden is actually reached through the house. So unlike most open garden schemes, you actually go through the house in order to view the garden and you're treated to glimpses of Anne's eclectic collection of also, of um, well, for a start, they say whimsy life-size Old ladies who recline on a couch in the front room. There's fairy. Oh, that'd, that'd spook me out. <laughs> <laughs> there's fairy themed ornaments from the tiny to the huge, and there's wax sculpture figures that uh, are just hanging from the roof. And can you imagine? What a it? good place to do Halloween. <laughs> yes. And then there's two tiny courtyard gardens and an original garden wall, which provides nooks and crannies for lots of plants and an enchanting through through view through the kitchen window. Now, towards the rear of the house, uh, the back garden comes into full view through a two-storey bay window, um, and it's got, as you can imagine, there are lots and lots of fairies hidden in the garden, so it's a real garden to take children to. Um, There's hanging baskets of ferns and perennials, there's pansies, orchids, There's even a chandelier out in the garden, would you believe? Best place for a chandelier, really. Yes. So um, the address is 45 Napier Street in Fitzroy. 
It's open 10 till 4.30 on both days next weekend. Uh, $8 entry, children under 18 are free, and students $5. So I'm so pleased when people allow for students to uh, give them a chance to go and have a look at a garden. Uh, So the address of that one, again, is 45 Napier Street in Fitzroy. And once again, our very good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have provided us with one free double pass. Fabulous. So uh, the first person to phone in to Jan... On 9419 can uh, have that uh, double pass next weekend. That will be posted out to them. <coughs> All right, uh, moving on. Uh, Friends of Burnley Gardens are holding a dinner in the Burnley Gardens, and this is being followed by a talk uh, by botanist Lindsay Poor called Wildflowers of the Deserts of Utah and Arizona. Now, this is taking place next Tuesday, 17th of November. Burnley College, of course, which is 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond. 5.30 for the dinner in the gardens and then 7.30 for the talk. Cost is $30 for members for the meal and the talk, 45 for non-members. But if you'd like to go along just for the talk, uh, $10 members, non-members, $20. Now, bookings are essential, of course, for catering. The number is 903 903- or you can email a.smith at unimelb.edu.au That phone number again 9035 Uh, Now also coming up next Saturday the 21st um, there is a Sunbury self-drive tour. Now this is uh, being held by the um, by the Australian Garden History Society. And uh, as I say, it's a self-drive tour through the historic district of Sunbury. The tour commences at Emu Bottom at 10am. You visit the country estate of Rupert's Wood. Um, Of course, we all know that that relates to the ashes, the cricket ashes. Um, You can enjoy the Alastair Clark Memorial Rose Garden. Which is looking stunning at the moment. I bet it is. Yes. Uh, you travel to Priorswood, Craiglee, uh, which is one of Australia's oldest and highly regarded wineries. You can wander around the former Sunbury Lunatic Asylum if you'd really like to. Yes. Well, <laughs> Don't get lost. It's got some nice trees. It's <laughs> actually quite an interesting place. Okay. <laughs> and the tour finishes at Woodlands Historic Park where afternoon tea can be purchased. So uh, the idea is to meet at Emu Bottom at 10 a.m., uh, registration is required. It's $10 per vehicle. BYO snacks and lunch. Uh, the Melway's reference for Emu Bottom is 362E6. And for registration and further information, you can phone Anthony and his number is 0414 That's 0414 Four, five, one. Just a couple more I should really get to. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, a sale that uh, doesn't come up terribly often. It's a special sale and mini display, um, and it's open to all bonsai clubs and enthusiasts alike. Now, it's taking place next Sunday. It's being held at the Japara Living and Learning Centre, which is at 54 to 58 Durham Road in Kilsyth, Melway's 5115, no, sorry, 51J5, 51J5. Now, the doors open at 10am and it only goes till 1pm. 
So uh, you need to get in there early. Cost is $2 uh, to get into that uh, that sale. There'll be a huge selection of bonsai and bonsai-related items. So it's a great way to uh, to pick up uh, many great bargains. And um, just as a, a gray, uh, Craig Wilson, our good friend, is a member of the club, so um, I'm sure he'll have some of his bonsais out there. And the Yarra Valley Bonsai Society is actually based in Mount Evelyn, uh, caters for bonsai enthusiasts of all ages, experience and skill levels. And uh, they have two meetings per month, the second Tuesday and the last Saturday, as well as group trips, special workshops and beginners and intermediate bonsai courses throughout the year. So they sound like a very a enthusiastic very, group, very enthusiastic mm. group, which is great. Yes. Uh, now, all my other ones relate to a bit further on, so we might leave those for uh, the moment and get back to them. If, if, we everybody, have time. if anybody goes to all those things, good luck <laughs> you to them. Possibly yes. do everything. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so we might uh, open our talkback lines for listeners. If you'd like to uh, give us a call, if you have a uh, question to ask, if you'd like to make any comment, uh, do give us a call. The number is nine four one nine zero one double five. That's nine four one nine zero one double five. On the panel in the studio this morning, we've got uh, Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Plants. We've got Penny Woodward, who can talk about all things edible. And we've got James Beatty from ABC Gardening Australia. So uh, do give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. I might also add that uh, coming up roughly uh, just after 8 o'clock, we do have uh, some special guests coming into the studio uh, so we will be taking a break from calls once they arrive. But uh, in the meantime, jump on those phones, 94190155. Stephen, you brought in some, some plants. Let's yes. have a chat. All right. Well, let's, I'll start with the big one. Yes, yeah, start uh, with the one that I immediately yes. caught my eye. Uh, this is a wonderful plant. It's a thing called Calacanthus sinensis. When it was first discovered in China in the 1980s, so quite recently, mm-hmm. um, they realised it was related to the North American calacanthus, calacanthus, um, which has a sort of a small burgundy flower and it's commonly known as an allspice bush. Uh, so they decided they'd put it in a genus of its own, so they called it Sinocalacanthus. Uh, they've since crossed the two and created a group of hybrids, and I loved the hybrid name. They called them Sinocalicanthuses. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, since that time, they've decided they're all calicanthus, so they've all been dumped <laughs> in together. Um, and this one is a wonderful shrub. It has these beautiful white flowers that's got just the faintest blush of pink in them, and the central petaloids are all lemony yellow. Mm. Uh, so it's a lovely flower, and it flowers at this time of the year when all the spring nonsense is mm. just about over. So I think it's a really good plant from that perspective. It has huge, soft, bright green, shiny leaves. Uh, so the foliage is worthy of garden merit right through the season. And in the autumn, the leaves go a really clear butter yellow before they shed. Mm. Um, it's a deciduous shrub, of course, if it's going to shed its leaves. It'll grow to about three to four metres, um, maybe slightly bigger in time. Uh, but like the other calicanthus, very prunable. Um, reasonably hardy. I mean, I wouldn't put it out in the hottest, dry spot in the garden I could yes. find. But otherwise, I think, you know, it's not particularly water hungry. Um, it doesn't mind a little sun. It will certainly tolerate a bit of shade. Um, so I think it's a plant that has potential in lots of gardens. Uh, the issue is that it just hasn't been tried. Mm. So we don't know enough about it yet or 
hasn't been trialled out in enough gardens to to see what its full um, tolerances are. But I think it's a great shrub. I really like it. I so. would suspect maybe not frost hardy. Oh no, it's completely frost hardy. Is it really? Oh yeah, yeah, completely cold hardy. That's not an issue with wow. it at all. Uh, that means I could actually grow it. No reason why not. Uh, I think it's a it's a fabulous plant. Yeah, so it looks sort of soft and lush, but in it fact does. it's 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 actually surprisingly hardy. So Calicanthus sinensis. What a great plant. It's funny, I was going to say, it's funny our different perspectives because I was looking at it and thinking 42 degrees, I can just see those yeah, the leaves, leaves burning. burning. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I a, think 42 yeah. degrees could be an issue for it. Uh, I mean, if you come from the hills of China, you're not used to no. that. No, true. Uh, so that's more likely to be its problem than, than in fact, the cold. cold yeah. uh, and certainly it, it whizzes through Mount Macedon's winters without even noticing. Um, and uh, so I reckon it could go to a lot colder than what we can throw at it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so a great shrub, and one day hopefully some of the hybrids between it and the North American one will get into the country. Um, we've certainly got the North American one, uh, Calicanthus occidentalis. Um, that's in the country, uh, and in fact it's been around for donkey's years. It's one of those really old-fashioned things you hardly ever see anymore. Um and if they don't get the hybrids in in due course, I might have to try and recreate them here because uh, I have seen there's one called Rutledge Wine, I think it's called, uh, which has dark burgundy flowers on it, which is really handsome. And I did see it in France uh, on one of the tours I was doing there uh, for ASA uh, in a garden we visited. They had uh, plants of it in bloom and it is Truly lovely. So hopefully we'll see the hybrids at one stage too. Oh, gosh, yes. Yes. So that's it. That's Calicanthus sinensis. Um, okay, let's go to our first caller. And we have uh, Robert online from Phillip Island. Morning, Robert. Hello, how are you all? We're well. Good, good morning. Everything's good down here. Good. Had a little bit of rain yeah. a few days ago and things are starting to kick around a bit. Tomatoes are slowly getting going. Right. And um, look, I get a bit of a problem. I was going to ask you with Snapdragon. I get rust over them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a suspicion I grow calendulas near them. Can they enhance rust calendulas to other. No. 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 No, no. The, the rust that you get on your Snapdragons is Snapdragon rust. <laughs> oh, right. And they're very prone to it. Um, uh, a bit like hollyhocks. They're, they're a yeah. bad rust plant as well. Oh. So you really need a very open aspect, plenty of air circulation. Um, I don't. I actually haven't grown Snapdragons for donkey's years, and I don't even know whether they've got any sort of rust-resistant strains of snapdragons mm. out there for sale or anything, I've not heard. Mm. Uh, but it is one of those things you, you you have to live with with snapdragons. And you've got to treat them a bit bit hard. They don't want to be too soft, sappy soft and, and well-fed yeah. and watered. Yeah. Uh, you'll often find the best snapdragons are the ones that are growing in old dry walls yes. and things like mm. that. Yes, my wife loves uh, uh, asters, but we've given up trying. We, we just get that wilt in asters all the time. So there's... Beautiful flower mm. too. But yeah, some of these flowers can be quite a challenge. The, um, the other thing, look, can, can I look, can I just say a couple of words? I'll, I promise I'll be quick. It just seems a shame to me that it, that with all the gardeners and all the power, I think uh, the whole gardening industry in Victoria is a sleeping giant. It just seems strange to me that the best we can do for the garden people who love to watch garden shows and television is a half an hour show a week on ABC to finish last night to start again in the new year, I think the public of this uh, state are a little bit starved for gardening programs. 
And I've here, here, I agree with you. I, I do. I do have a little bit of good news for you, Robert, and right. that is that they're gonna they're gonna be replaying all of this year's season right. over the summer holidays. They're gonna be putting one episode oh, episode to air um, yeah. every day. I think yes. I think about midday. But do check your TV guides because. Yeah. Um, the people in scheduling do have a want to kind of change yes. their minds at the last minute and shift it an hour forward, you know, two yes. weeks later. So, but but, but that is happening now. But, so, but with the power, with <clears> the power <throat> of the industry, if the garden industry and people that are involved in it, I think it's a sleeping giant. Mm. I think if if it was collated better and presented better, I can't see why a program can't be for an hour sure. on the garden show. Now, there's a. There's an interesting fellow, Vasilio. He he has a garden show on, I think it's C31 on a Wednesday night at 7.30. He's the gentleman that plays the piano accordion. Yep. Mm, yes, we all know him. Yes. Right. <laughs> why, why, couldn't the, why couldn't that show be tapped into with other gardening people with the, with the thought of having it, giving him some more... Uh, interest to have other people involved what i'm saying is i think the whole garden industry in victoria is a sleeping giant that hasn't been put together and i don't think we realize the power that that industry the industry has if it was projected better but that's my own personal opinion Mm. Uh, the problem is um, <clears throat> that, uh, Robert, that, for instance, um, Vicilio produces the um, – that's his program. He nominates who his guests are oh, on yes. the program. And so um, yes, yes, there yes. isn't any cross-cultural mix. <laughs> no, no, but what a shame there can't be. Mm. The yes. The point, point I'm trying to make is if that show can, A, be presented as well as it is and survives like it does – why, why can't there be other avenues for those sort of shows? You've got to remember also, Robert, that television pro- producers are not gardeners no, and they right. think that they are actually covering gardening quite well. Yeah. So useless. in a sense, you're right, it needs to come from the gardening fraternity yes. and particularly the industry yes, uh, yes. to push for more gardening on television. Mm. But if you talk to any television executive, they'll say, oh, but Gardening Australia covers it, uh, or yes, Vasily yes. covers it, mm. or, yeah, or whomever it. covers it, mm. uh, and they don't realise there's a whole wealthy range of gardening activities and topics out there that are actually not being covered, mm. um, particularly the more um, technical and yes. in-depth stuff, because yes. television by nature tends to be sort of a grab-type thing. Yes, yes, um, yes. So, there, yeah, I mean, there could be. I mean, I tried to promote myself to SBS at one stage, uh, and they said they didn't have a budget for gardening. And they weren't going to do any more gardening, Mm. and they haven't. Mm. Um, uh, So you've got a whole station there that's not even doing any gardening. Mm. No, it's a shame. Look, I won't mention it, but I I know a very big company in Victoria. I was talking to them one day, and I said, look, in my opinion, there are better bulb companies out there than uh, tapping on your door. And the exact thing they said to me was, look... We would look at the other bold companies, Robert, but none of them have come to see us. In other words, I think as an industry, we've, the garden industry has to get together a bit more and has to show the power that it has. Mm. No, and, you're right, Robert. But anyhow, we'll have to move on yeah, because we've, we've okay. actually got some others thanks for that. coming in. But bye thanks, bye. For, your, thanks for your thoughts. Uh, and we will go quickly to Marilyn in Sunshine. Good morning, Marilyn. Good morning. Um, look, I have a query about my lemon tree. Um, 
I was going to spray it with eco oil, but can I do it when it's in flower? Yeah, look, you can use eco oil. The only thing you've got to be careful with with eco oil is not to um, to spray it. You need to spray it either in the evening or in the morning of a cool day. Okay. Because you you because of the oil content of the spray, you can act, the leaves can be damaged by really strong sunlight being increased by coming through the oil. If that makes makes sense. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. but it won't damage flowers. Okay, thank you. I just have one more. Um, I was given a mandarin tree and I've put it in a pot and it's in flower and it's got fruit on. Do I thin that out like I do my apricot or nectarine tree? Uh, yes, I would. Thin the fruit out yeah. as well? Yeah, okay. you don't want too much, too many fruit, but don't do it too dramatically. Um, okay. If you leave them on, you'll get small fruit, um, but if you take a few out, you'll get some bigger, bigger fruit. fruit. Yep. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay, All thank the best, you. Marilyn. Bye. Bye. Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, that in the studio we've uh, just been uh, joined by two very special guests. One is someone that uh, all our regular listeners know extremely well. Good morning, A.B. Oh, good morning, Pam, and good morning, listeners. It's lovely to be a special guest this morning rather than a mere panellist. <laughs> yes, lovely to be here. You're, you're a jack of all trades, A.B. Oh, I think so, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, the other person we've been joined by is um, Angus Bishop or uh, Angus Stewart. <laughs> Angus I didn't know you two had got yeah, together to that. Yeah, did I actually? <laughs> well, they have collaborated in one way, but not in that way. <laughs> Angus, you're down from Sydney. Um, great that we've been able to, to grab you and come into the studio this morning. And, of course, you're both here for one very special reason. You've collaborated on the most amazing book, um, it's entitled The Australian Native Garden, A Practical Guide, written by the two of you. Um, now, I have to say, the book, I have actually finally, last night, read it from cover to cover, I can say that much. Did you read the whole index? <laughs> <laughs> now, the book covers absolutely every aspect that I can think of in regard to Australian natives. I can't think of any any other aspect you, you just haven't covered. It's it's amazing. It's very clearly set out and described. Um you know, the, the, the average gardener is going to understand what's written in there, but there's, there's so much extra information and cross-referencing that there's a lot of information there for even the most professional gardener. So um, well done on that one. Um, Angus, I want to start with you because you mentioned that you really wanted it to be a national book. And if you think about Australia, you think about the range of soils, of climates, of plants. I mean, that was pretty hard call to make. Indeed, uh, Pam, and a very ambitious one at that. But one of the things that I find really um, sometimes frustrating about uh, getting people to grow Australian plants is uh, this sort of mentality of lumping them all in to one category. So this is a native plant, therefore it will, you know... Uh, it's with... going to be drought tolerant for a yes, start. Yes, yes. <laughs> don't have, don't have to water it. Don't have to water it. Yes, <laughs> all, all of those things. Yes. But when you start travelling around Australia, and this is what we've done, uh, to subalpine areas, to um, semi-arid areas and everything in between, you realise what a uh, wealth and diversity of plants that we have. And if we started 
thinking about them more in terms of their plant groupings. This is a woody perennial. This one is a, um, a rhizomatous perennial like a kangaroo paw that I brought in. Uh, think about them more in terms of those categories and how to manage those plants. We would get a, a much better garden performance out of them. Mm. So, And, of course, also... It's about um, getting across the whole country to all of those people that working on Gardening Australia, uh, you realise that the program, you know, is state-based and each person in each state has a, a fantastic contribution in terms of those local environments. So that's that was our aim, really. Yeah, and also, Pam, there's, there's quite a few books out there which are, I mean, Melbourne gardeners are well into their gardens as are you know sort of up the coast towards Sydney and um, a lot of books focus only on those areas or you know predominantly on those areas and we wanted to include gardens and wild walks from all over Australia to show people that you know there's such a huge diversity of plants out there so we wanted to yeah bring it all into the book and make it relevant for people around the country. Now I have to ask you AB um I mean, the two of you have collaborated on this book, but you, you live in different states. <laughs> yeah, so you weren't sitting around the table together, no, were you? No, not very often, no. <laughs> it was a, a, quite a few Skype sessions. So, so did you each take um, a different subject or a different um, chapter of the book, or how did you actually collaborate? Yeah, well, we sat down and um, worked out what we wanted in the book, for starters, and, you know, there was obviously quite a few elements there, as you've seen by the different parts, and then we probably looked at what each of our strengths were and what we would start writing and so we wrote um, particular sections ourselves and then we swapped and um, each added to the other Um, so you know there's input from both of us throughout the book although I have to say that Angus being the um, the master breeder that he is I would have to say the cultivar section is entirely Angus's and (laughs) I did pick that oh yeah and I mean it's just so rich with information and you, you know it's the the publishers have done an incredible job of presenting that information in a in a really accessible way um, but, you know, I, I flick through it and, you know, read stuff that I don't know, which, of course, is in Angus's head, which is lovely for me to be able to access as well. So, of course, yeah. of course. Now, the book opens um, with quite a compelling argument for Indigenous gardens. Um, and Angus, uh, as, as AB's mentioned, because you're a plant breeder um, and, of course, a lot of the plants that you're trying to breed up and sell to the public and, and invite them to put into their own gardens... Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts on Indigenous versus Native. Indeed, and and I guess that was one of the uh, key things that uh, AB has brought to the book because her garden is um, very much uh, along the lines of all the Indigenous species of the Yarra Valley and uh, the natural environment. And uh, I came to uh, an interest in Australian plants through a love of the bush, which I think just about everyone does who, mm. who uh, wants to grow native plants. And so you you start off with this journey, which uh, we've got a big section called Into the Wild, where uh, we wander around uh, large parts of Australia. Terrible part of the book, that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it must have been hard for you to cope with. It was with. really <laughs> difficult. It, it was hell, let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all that travel. All yeah. that looking at the wildflowers of Western Australia, yeah. I can't imagine anything worse. But... Uh, but you, you know, you start from that love of the natural environment, but when I uh, started 
uh, my interest in native plants you know, 40 years ago, uh, there were very few plants that were kind of uh, good garden performers. So I think that's really been um, part of the journey is to, as a horticultural scientist, I suppose I'd describe myself as, is, is to try and uh, bring our plants to a level where the average gardener can uh, take some of these plants and get a good sort of uh, garden performance. So as Stephen knows, uh, you know, for thousands of years we've been working yeah. on these plants uh, from... I mean, apples didn't just arrive. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> it's what we do as a species uh, yeah. and our, our success as civilizations has depended on, on domesticating animals and plants. Mm. Um, so, uh, But I do see this tremendous opportunity for a balance and my own gardens when I create them are uh, based on the indigenous flora but I very carefully add plants to that uh, so I brought in a kangaroo pool which has been a bit of a, a lifelong obsession breeding those to make them more garden friendly because a lot of them are the, the wild ones are what I'd call the drop dead plant yes. <laughs> yes. So, yeah built in obsolescence <laughs> <laughs> well it's it, when you look at their when you do get in the bush and study their ecology they're very much fire opportunists mm. mm. so they're really only designed to, to grow for a couple of years before setting seed and uh, disappearing under a, uh, a whole wealth of shrubs and trees mm. over the top of them. So uh, I guess I, I would uh, plead for a uh, the concept of an Australian garden or one based on uh, Australian plants to uh, include a, a large element of the indigenous flora to link with the, uh, the local fauna. Mm. And uh, look, it, yes, if these cultivars have a place, it is in filling uh, perhaps special needs uh, within the, the gardening um, kind of framework. Mm, mm. Yeah. And I'll just add to that, I mean, um, putting a bit of Indigenous um, elements into your garden isn't difficult because most Melbourne councils have, you know, they have lots of information about what is Indigenous to their area. And I think gardeners generally are really ecologists at heart. And, you know, you, you're trying to improve your land, you're trying to improve your soil and the surrounds, and, and everyone likes to have birds in their garden. So, you know, there's such a huge range of Indigenous plants for every area that it's actually easy. You don't have to have an entirely Indigenous garden. And for most people, that would be a bit too boring. But, and a bit you know, impossible you, if you want to grow some veggies. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's the case with me. You know, yeah. I say, that I've got, you know, probably an 80% Indigenous garden because I've got that kitchen garden. But there are so many plants out there. You could just include, you know, a few grasses or a few um, uh, prickly shrubs to attract some of the smaller birds and, and that sort of thing. So it's actually quite easy to, to bring those Indigenous elements into your garden. Mm-hmm. You're listening to uh, the 3CR Gardening Show. Our special guests in the studio uh, Angus Stewart from ABC Gardening Australia and AB Bishop, and we're discussing the very new book, which um, in fact isn't even in the shops yet. It will be. Um, I've since been told by the publishers it'll be out next Friday on the twentieth, so um, not long to wait. But the book is entitled "The Australian Native Garden: A Practical Guide." 
Um, AB, the photos in the book are absolutely stunning. Thanks, Pam. Yes. Uh, who took them? Well, it was a combination, a, an absolute combination. Yeah. So um, Angus and I probably took the majority of them. Um, we were, we had a um, commissioned photographer from Sydney, Autumn Mooney, and she was commissioned to uh, take the photos of many of the gardens. So the garden examples that we've got in there. Um, so and Autumn and I travelled around everywhere together, just um, getting into the gardens in the morning, you know, and the early evening, just getting the, the right light. And she's made some incredible contributions to that. And then we've also had other people who've, you know, sent in one or two examples that we've asked for. Um, I think um, there was a is Mickey a um, Tasmanian uh, photographer? Mika, Mika uh, yeah, Boynton. Boynton. Yeah. Uh, well, she's originally Victorian, oh. but she lives in Broome. Um, oh, she's she a travels professional. all around the place. Yeah, her, her photos are just absolutely exceptional. And so we, we wanted to – we tried to include photos, of course, from a huge range of gardens <laughs> and climates and and all those sorts of things to, to show people what is, what is possible, basically – um, but uh, yeah, so there, there's some gorgeous examples, for, especially what into the wild and um, and and the, the garden examples themselves. So, mm. um, well, the book then goes on to to a much more practical section or a couple of sections. Um, for instance, elements of design and making a garden. And here it really gets down to worth with some very detailed instructions, particularly in Angus's uh, <laughs> section with propagating plants. But that is fantastic because, because you've started off with Into the Wild by explaining to listeners, giving them an insight into which plants come from where and why they need the particular requirements they need. So they've got that general understanding if they're wanting to plant any of those plants in their garden, but then you you really get right into it as to how they can go about it, right, starting from the very beginning and what to look for. And you cover some um, some really excellent subjects that a lot of people overlook. So, for instance, um, fire considerations, which is so important in our climate, and and books never ever discuss it. It's disregarded everywhere, and yet. Of course, um, it's such an important subject. It is, and it is for a lot of Australians because we all live in quite close proximity. <clears throat> you know, people like myself and Angus and, and Stephen and even yourself, Pam, we live in very bushy areas, so mm. we know that we're in a bushfire area. But then there's some people who, who are in the burbs who they might not think they're in a bushfire area, but there might be um, vast expanses of reserves close by. And, of course, everywhere, you know, it's quite a treed city, so it, there's the um, chance for bushfire to go through pretty much any of the suburbs quite easily. So we... we wanted bushfire elements or designing uh, bushfire gardens to be quite prominent in the book simply because we are all at danger pretty much. So there's quite a few uh, design tips and tricks in there about what to, um, what to do if you're designing you know, in a bushfire area, things to consider for safety and, you know, for your safety, the house's safety and that sort of thing. Mm. I think the other point too about uh, the fire considerations is uh, there are certainly a, a lot of species in the Australian flora that are uh, prone to fire. The Myrtaceae or the eucalypt family are mm. full of essential oils. Um, but there are uh, a considerable number of plants, uh, like succulents, for instance, native succulents, that uh, could be incorporated. Uh, so you've got plants that are could be considered fire-retarded, mm. in fact. Yes. So, so it's, it's very... Uh, 
important to understand the role of, of fire within the Australian environment and uh, that gives you so many clues about how to design a garden and I think really we need to be thinking about designing our um, living structures around those gardens as well. Mm. So, And, yeah. of course, some of our native plants need fire to regenerate, don't they? Yeah, well, so it's our fault we build in amongst them sometimes. <laughs> well, look, I think it, it, when you look at the Aboriginal culture, they they didn't have permanent uh, housing structures. True. And, and I do wonder, you know, if they got to a point where they just... Um, yeah, came to the the understanding that that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> yeah, they were smarter than us straight off. <laughs> well, I, look, I just think it, it's uh, something that we need to uh, understand. We're in a drying climate as well. And so if we don't start to take these things a lot more seriously uh, from a whole design point of view, oh, garden yes. and houses, then, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to ask for trouble, really. Mm. And, Pam, with the fire section, we spoke to people who had been through bushfires um, and seen what had happened to their gardens, you know, people whose gardens were completely decimated, you know, by the um, Black Black Saturday fires and, you know, the plants, what plants regenerated after that. Um, interestingly, a lot of exotics. <laughs> um, but then we also... In, the, in looking for plants that were, um, you know, perhaps highly flammable versus not so flammable, there was a lot of conflicting information out there, which was really bothersome. Um, but we finally, we happened upon this list, which was put out by the Royal Tasmanian Fire Authority, as well as the uh, Tasmanian Botanical Gardens. And they had collaborated on this project where they'd actually gone out and burnt plants. And from there, they came up with this list of what was highly flammable, medium flammability and low flammability. So that's the list that we ended up going with. Um, and I think more and more people are, you know, experimenting and seeing what plants are um, highly flammable. You know, we're looking at things with new eyes since all, you know, these huge fires and we know that we, we're moving into more bushfire prone times. Um, people are more aware and they're, they're looking at things with new eyes. So I think even, you know, down the track there's going to be more information about it again. But um, this this was a really good start, we thought. Mm, no, fantastic. I love, to the fact that you've got um, dotted throughout the book, you've got expert tips, um, you've got specific references to uh, relevant websites, and in every case, every time you mention a plant, you've listed its botanical name so thank you for that <laughs> well, hallelujah so yeah so important and with the with the botanical experts i'm so glad you picked on that picked up on that pam because angus and i were saying you know it's really sure we we've, we've both brought our knowledge to it but there is a lot of expert information in here from these experts you know we've got holly parsons who's a um a bird expert we've got our friends um gwen and roger elliott who provide their input so we've we've put a little profile of each of these experts and then they give us their tips on you know whatever their expert is you know elspeth jacobs she's a guide for the um, Cranbourne Botanic Gardens and she's absolutely crazy about small eucalypts you know and she's grown them for years and years so she gives us her tips you know and that's in the book and then of course each we've got um, nine, nine gardens in the book and each of these owners they bring their um, knowledge into the book as well, you know, because they've got different um, different areas, they're all in different areas, they've um, overcome different challenges so 
you know, their tips and tricks are in the book as well. So it might be written by Angus and I, but there's a lot of expert information in here. And and um, the role of I mean there's there's in fact eleven different gardens you go to visit. How lucky were you to wander through people's um, gardens? But um, they're really inspiring. Um, you know, you've you've you led us from out in the wild to what's happening in nature to what people have actually created in their own home gardens, and they are all very different with with different views on what to plant and why. And you always link it into what you learn from that garden, um, special things you, you've picked up on uh, that they've done in their own garden, which I think is, is, is really excellent. Yeah, and there was there's a couple of Indigenous gardens in there, um, Louise and Les Pell in in Rushworth, and they've you know that area is an extremely sort of um, hardy area, you know the the, the gold rush sort of area, and mm. um, very rocky and dry. And um, her garden is just exceptional. And um, yeah, as you say, there's there's gardens from all over Australia, different climates, and you know the challenges that have been faced by by those particular gardeners. Mm. And finally, um, you, you know, you've, you've got a full, um, well, uh, you know, quite a comprehensive list of modern Australian native cultivars at the back of the book, complete with a photo for each one so you can identify it, you can see what it looks like, a very comprehensive key so you can look at when it flowers, you know, its, it's height, uh, it, and on it goes. Um, so thank you for that also because it, it makes the book, it turns the book into a fantastic reference for anyone who's now been inspired to actually get out there and try and make a, a, an Australian garden. Yes, uh, Pam, the, the cultivar section, I guess that's my baby to uh, a great extent and uh, it, I suppose after a lifetime of breeding native plants, I have uh, run up against just about every other native plant enthusiast yes. who has created a cultivar. And <laughs> the, the word cultivar means cultivated variety, and uh, it, it's a much uh, misunderstood concept, I think, uh, because a cultivar could just can just be a selected form of a species. Mm. So you can have something which is from your local area, mm. for instance, uh, like Godinia ovata, for instance, the hopbush uh, uh, is a uh, fabulous garden plant and uh, I've selected a couple of forms which uh, one is a prostrate form, for instance. So normally it's an upright plant but if you've got an embankment or a uh, rockery, something like that, you, you want a prostrate one. So that uh, you can have that local species with uh, the kind of benefit of mm. it. Angus, a question on cultivars, though, when you're putting them into a book, we all know that cultivars have a tendency to come and go. You know, something new, something new comes along, it's the flavour of the month, and then mm. something better comes along and it gets mm. pushed off. Um, in your selection criteria for cultivars, um, was it about, you know, trying to select things that, either have shown longevity in the industry or you feel will uh, and not just the latest novelty or something that's come along, you know, like the new rose bush that's just been touted yes. for this this year or whatever. Absolutely, Stephen, a great point because uh, a lot of cultivars become extinct. Yeah. Uh, they, they're really, uh, it's up, up to the quality of the plant and I always say I don't really know whether a cultivar is going to be successful until there's 100,000 of them yeah, out there. And then you can say they were because they were. <laughs> yes, yes. So, Hindsight. Uh, look, I've tried to choose plants that I think will stand the test of time, yeah. but I have a, a, a 
fallback position where I, I actually have a website called Gardening with Angus with an extensive database of uh. plants on it so that people can actually go there and look at... Um, yeah, because having said all of that, your book, The Cultivar Section, almost by... The, what it is will in fact date, won't it? Because, you know, yeah. there'll be new things coming out all the time. So um, uh, it will, in 10 years' time, perhaps, for instance, sake, a lot of those cultivars may or may not be holding in there. Um, so, yes, if you're talking about species, well, of course, they're, they, they're there. But cultivars do come and go. So, you know, yes. th- that's the one part of the book that could, in fact, date the most, I guess. Oh, indeed. And mm. I expect some of these cultivars will become extinct. Mm. Uh, but... Uh, as I say, I've got a database which has both species and cultivars, so mm. all of those old favourites, uh, people can actually find them uh, there online. And uh, the book is really, a, it's a snapshot of mm. what is, I think is going to stand the test of time. So there are some outstanding new bottle brush coming out, for oh, instance, yeah. mm. uh, plants that which are... apparently now all Melaleucas. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I well, hate to throw those I, things I, in. No, well, actually, I'm, I don't. I love it. <laughs> I'm glad you've uh, opened that can of <laughs> Oh, any time, Angus. Just ask me. I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Uh, dear. But it's it's part of the knowledge, though, that we're gaining. And uh, as we learn more about uh, these native plants, uh, indeed, um, genetically, it, it seems that Melaleucas and Callistamins are much more closely related. Yeah, than we than, ever thought. Than yes. we thought. Yes. So it's... Um, you know, to me, that's that's a fascinating uh, possibility for developing new cultivars. Yes, that, that yes. Can... crossing the two groups that you once thought were separate genera. Mm. Who knows what you can create? It's a great example because uh, bottle brush melaleucas are fantastic plants for clay soils, which mm. uh, a wide range of gardeners seem to have around Australia, in uh, particular in urban areas. So there are these fabulous, iconic plants like flannel flowers and yeah. waratahs, which drop dead as soon as you <laughs> yes. put them in um, poorly drained clay. So we need a range of plants that, that will fill those voids and and I guess that's where I uh, see those cultivars coming in. And also with the cultivar section, I think it's also about the types of plants. Like people can flick through because there are so many. You know, you can see the types of foliage plants that might suit your garden or the shrubs or trees or ground covers, you know. So I think from that point of view, yeah, while some of the cultivars might come and go, um, you can you can get a sense of what would look good, great in your garden just from yeah. So you just go out and find through. a new one. <laughs> that, yeah, and that's exactly right. But also, I think these days um, breeders are not only um, experimenting much more, but um, the plants are being grown in a wide range of gardens like Angus for example has um, plants dotted all over Australia growing and then he'll go back and photograph them and see how they're doing and then you know then he'll only include plants in his catalogue which he knows do well in particular uh, climates and soils and whatever and a lot of breeders are doing that as well now Mm. because you know sharing that knowledge is so much easier these days. Mm. Well the other thing that, that that list does give you is that it gives you an idea that within a plant family hey, they are producing a dwarf one, which means uh, down the track there'll still be dwarf ones available, Mm. but they are, or they are producing, you know, one that functions as a ground cover. So it gives you that that extra depth of knowledge, even if the same actual cultivar goes out of fashion or dies off or whatever, 
there'll be others to take its place that, that do the same function. Indeed, and uh, sometimes cultivars are selected because it's a, a new colour within mm. a uh, mm. genus, so like this lilac-coloured kangaroo paw. It's, uh, it's actually a straight species, uh, Anagazanthus flavidus, but uh, you get these uh, interesting mutations occurring and this one is a lovely, soft, uh, lilac-y colour. Uh, and I think it will stand the test of time because mm. that particular species is uh, a it's very pretty tough, tough isn't it? garden yeah. plant. Mm. Um, so, look, yeah, I think it... it uh, you've got it. Uh, the overall advice I would like to give people about native plants is take them case by case. And research each plant, does it stand up in, as far as those fire considerations mm. go? Does it, uh, can you hedge it? Uh, yeah, all mm. of those things are really important, to, I think, to uh, look at each individual plant uh, and not sort of lump it into this category. It's a native plant, therefore it will do this, that and the other. We don't uh, do it with it. exotics. I don't no. quite mm. understand how this happens because, you know, we, we take exotics case by case, you know. Yes. Is it a, is it a, uh, a Mediterranean climate mm. plant or is it a, a rainforest plant or is it a, an alpine plant or whatever? Um, and when you talk exotics, you don't tend to talk so much about the country they come from. You tend to talk about the habitat they come from. And, in fact, I sometimes have to think if somebody says, where does it come from? And I think they're not talking about that it comes from the hills. They actually want to know <laughs> the country it comes from um, because I grow it because it does a job. And our native plants should be the same. I always point out Mm. to people that Australia is only a political barrier in a sense. I mean, we could have been several countries. Then then where would we be? You know, Tasmania is over the ocean as New Zealand is, and yet we see those two groups of plants as quite distinct in a lot of ways. The Tasmanian ones are Australian natives. The New Zealand ones aren't. Perfectly illustrating the point, I think, Mm. about consider each plant case by case. Yeah, Yeah, you have to. You know, Mm. And, and in fact, I always like the people who come in and they say, oh, I want a hardy native, and you say, well... Yeah, um, but uh, you know why specifically, and you and you then talk mm. them through what they what they're really meaning because you know not all natives are hardy. I can sell them a Tasmanian Mount Laurel that they'll kill in Eltona very quickly, um, uh, and and yet there's plenty of exotics that will do the job too. So you've just got to yeah you've got to treat them all as plants. I think in a way. I think Stephen, part of the reason why that happens is because we are so we grow we've grown up with exotic plants generally speaking, mm. and we're familiar with them. We know them. We know what they do. We, we often know what areas they come from, whereas in some sense to a lot of gardeners, native plants, particular native plants, are quite new yeah. and unique. And it's just having that knowledge and it's slowly filtering through and we're seeing more and more native plants and native gardens, so we're becoming more familiar with them and therefore we don't necessarily need to ask all those questions. So I think that, I think that will change yeah. over yeah. time. And, and look, I think we, uh, and I'm sure Angus will agree with me on this, this one when we first had our first native plant pushback in the 1960s it was so ill thought so full of misinformation i mean you had blue gums being planted outside fitzroy <laughs> terrace houses you know i mean it was it was just a nonsense and and you know wild plants were being taken straight into cultivation they were told they didn't need pruning so of course they had grevilleas going over the paths and getting woody and awful and uh, and and of course a native garden consisted of a sleeper and three rocks yes. <laughs> what i call the morse code style of gardening <laughs> well I, I have personal experience of this because yeah. i remember my brother was a budding horticulturist back in the 70s and um, 
and we went on a family holiday and my brother was sort of late teens and he stayed behind and he surprised my mum by renovating the front garden. <laughs> oh, goodness <laughs> me. Yes, big surprise by the and sounds he, of it. He planted uh, eucalyptus nicolae, which uh, uh, about a metre apart, a row of uh, <laughs> six of them. I love it. And, uh, yes, within two years, yeah. uh, yes, you had a hedge which consisted of trunks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it it yeah. perfectly illustrates your point. And, and it did. It actually was a disservice to native plants for a long time because <clears> then everybody went and planted cottage gardens or something else because they went, oh, well, those scruffy old things, you know, and they, you know, they just didn't understand the plants they were using. They were using the wrong plants. Um, they, they were trying to create an imitation of the bush instead of using the bush plants to create a coherent whole and something that was pleasing. I mean, you can get out into the bush and you can find some very scruffy areas, but they're natural and that's exactly how they're meant to be. But in your garden, you don't necessarily you want don't that. You don't want that, yeah. You, know, you, want, you want a plant to thrive, don't yeah, you? Not yeah. just survive. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Native plants got a bad reputation because they would often survive, mm. but that didn't mean they were flourishing and looking good. Well, that's it. If you take a rose and uh, don't prune it for yep. a couple of years, you've got exactly the same effect. Yeah, so but you know you should be pruning your rose, so you do. Or if most you want do. that effect yeah. of a lovely bushy plant with lots of flowers. Yeah. So yeah. It, it comes back to that idea of, of looking at each uh, plant as, is it a woody perennial? Yeah. When does it flower? When does it need pruning uh, to get mm. it looking uh, more like this. But that is the issue. Now concept. we talk about pruning our natives. We talk about feeding course, our yeah. natives. We yeah. talk about watering our natives. We talk about them as plants instead yeah. of as something other. Yeah, something <laughs> alien. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, they become part of the palette. And in fact, not to push my own barrow particularly, but I'm actually getting to the point where I think uh, it's more important as to what the plant does in some ways than where it comes from. And we can have blended gardens. They oh, don't yeah. have to be. Uh, I, and that's one of the things that I think a, a lot of native ophiles uh, actually did a disservice because they said, well, you have to have native plants uh, and they don't mix with exotics. Uh, and so, you, therefore, you're either of one camp or another. And I'm very much in the middle camp. I mean, I garden in a, a place where I've got uh, messmates, uh, eucalyptus viminalis as well. I've got ex. ex- Exocarpas growing in my garden. I've got um, acacia melanoxylans. So I've got that overstory of native plants that I've left and I'm working with. Um, and there's some lower native plants in there as well, but I'm mixing the exotics in. Um, and I don't see any um, problem. I don't actually see these plants looking awful together. You know, they actually do well together. You go to the rhododendron gardens and the dandenongs. I mean, you'll see all these great big blousy rhododendrons under eucalyptus regnans and with tree ferns. And, and Yes. And also from an ecological point of view, I mean, the birds don't really care where they get their nectar from. They, they'll take nectar from any flower. Yeah. But I think just having that balance is a fantastic mm. idea because yeah. there, I think there's ecology in the garden that we don't see and we don't know at this stage. So that's why mm. I think it's important. Yeah, diversity can actually diversity. be useful Absolutely. even if it's not native diversity because yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I know I've got little uh, honey-eating birds and I mean they come in and they, they take nectar out of my agapetes from the Himalayas and they yeah, take nectar fussy. out of my fuchsia from, from South America and you know and my camellias get shredded by the honey-eaters as well you know all that 
Well, I think the point to me is uh, a lot of the family, like the Kangaroo Paul family, Hema DeRacy, I'm sure you've got a few uh, Hema DeRacy from other continents tucked away in your nursery, the Wackendorfia. Yeah, I love Wackendorfia just to grow it because of its name. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, and coming out of the point of mixing um, um, plants in the garden, I'm on my way out to the um, Rose and Garden uh, show at Werribee Park ah, yes. after uh, we leave here. And, uh, You're going to be in amongst all those prickly roses. Well, I'm going to give a talk because uh, a friend of mine has designed a garden using uh, lilac kangaroo paws with mauve roses and uh, yeah. um, salvias and it looks absolutely amazing. Mm. Uh, so in terms of garden design, uh, again, she's just looking at it. Uh, he's a strappy leaf perennial that uh, d- does the job. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, you say with the bird life, uh, it's on the edge of a national park, this particular garden. So you've got all these honey eaters and spinebills mm. coming in and, and they love the salvias yeah. as much as they oh, yeah. love the kangaroo yeah. well, paws. And the same thing's happening in New Zealand. When I was in New Zealand last year on a garden tour I was leading, we went to the Auckland Botanic Gardens, which is mainly New Zealand native plants. But they've got a rose garden underplanted with New Zealand native plants. And, and I was talking to one of the, the gardeners there and they say, we get into so much trouble with this garden because mm. you have the native uh, mm. uh, lovers coming in and they just see it as, as sacrilege that you've got roses and New Zealand native plants growing together and yet it looked really smart. Mm. I thought it looked fantastic. Uh, if anything, the New Zealand natives made the roses look quite good. Um, and, um, you know, and so they're obviously coming to terms with similar sorts of you know, garden perceptions as, as we are here. Well, our, our roots in the English gardening culture... You yeah, know, they're you the look, same. They're, mm. Well, there's this whole uh, movement there where they brought plants from all around the world and mm. what a stunning effect that you get when those perennial borders over there. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I have to say congratulations to both of you. It's a fantastic book. Um, I just hope everybody picks up on it because they are going to learn so much about our, our Australian native plants. Um, there really is information on any aspect that you, that you want to find out about more or there is enough inspiration and encouragement there that if you've never grown a native um, at all, you might hopefully get started and that'll, that'll whet your appetite. But the book we've been talking about is The Australian Native Garden, A Practical Guide. It is written by Angus Stewart and A.B. Bishop. It's published by Murdoch Books. Um, it retails for forty nine ninety nine, which is very good value for it a book of that size. It is extremely good say. value. Um, it's hardcover, of course. Um, it's forty nine. Um, it's got uh, two hundred twenty eight pages. Uh, stunning photographs right throughout the book, um, and the information is just fantastic. Congratulations, both of you. Uh, just don't sit back on your laurels, you two. <laughs> Be they native laurels or otherwise. <laughs> now, now I, I have to remind listeners that firstly, um, this book is very much hot off the press. It won't actually be available in shops until next Friday, the 20th of November. But the publishers have sent me one copy, which um, we are going to offer this morning as, as a uh, supporter segment. I'm actually going to ask uh, Angus and AB if they would sign that copy for one of our listeners. So if you would like to grab your hands on a hot-off-the-press book that is just stunning, um, do give us a call. Uh, it's uh, 
you'll be supporting the gardening show and 3CR. um, or if you'd like us to post it out to you, $60. um, Whoever likes to call in to uh, on our number, 94190155. Jan will take your call. Um, As I say, but we only have one copy, so it's a matter of first in, best dressed on 94190155. Thank you both for coming in this morning. I'm sorry I dragged you in early, Angus. No problem at all, Pam. There's no end of good to get up and see the sun rise, (laughs) doesn't it? It's a legendary program, uh, I have to say, the 3CR Gardening Show. So it's an absolute privilege to uh, have been on it. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you both and all the very best. Thanks so much, Pam. Okay. And uh, I have to invite our um, Penny and uh, James back into the studio. If, uh, If our listeners would like to... Ask a gardening question this morning. Of course, we will be running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. So uh, you do have time to jump on the phones and to ask a gardening question. That number to call, uh, if you'd like to join in the program, is 94190155. That's 94190155 if you'd like to ring in and ask a gardening question this morning. Okay, uh, welcome back, James and Penny. Thank G'day. you for that. Um, uh, and I hope listeners really enjoyed... Uh, we don't often get the chance to have a, a personal chat to Angus because he has had to fly down specially from Sydney, so uh, we do really appreciate his time. It's always good to catch up with him. Absolutely. Uh, we have had mention um, while we were doing that interview, uh, we were talking about climate change. I do have a message here to say that there is a climate change rally on on the 27th of November here in Melbourne at starting at 5:30 at the State Library of Victoria so if anyone feels strongly about uh, climate change and you want to uh, show your support to our pollies to really do something positive uh, on that basis that rally is 27th of November 530 uh, at the State Library of Victoria. Um, Pam, can I just add that that's part of the lead-up to the big talks um, in Europe um, about climate change and setting levels, and there's going to be marches all over Australia. Fantastic. And I'm going to the one on the on the on the 27th so I might see you there with all the other hundreds of thousands of people absolutely yeah fantastic James while we're waiting for some calls to come through you've brought in a couple of bits and pieces too do you want to have a chat I have yeah absolutely um unfortunately it's it's happened that I feared would but um this is a this is a native local species of um tobacco actually um, and I've used it quite extensively in my what, nature. What, to smoke? <laughs> well, yes. Absolutely. Well, no. no. <laughs> um, but it's the, the flowers have become a bit desiccated because I've, I've nipped them off and haven't put them in water. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of those plants that I think it should be in every garden centre in Melbourne because it's, it's really, really beautiful. It flowers nonstop for months and months and months. Um, and it's got these beautiful white flowers um, and, and the classic tubular tobacco flower um, shape. And it's, I always kind of describe it as like a – the foliage is like a squashed-in Nicotiana sylvestris. Mm. It's like a little mm. squat version of that, mm. and it puts up these beautiful, beautiful flower spikes, and this is the foliage of it here. Um, and it's just I've got it, – I've got it planted in the, in the nature strip as well as in the front garden, neither of which get any supplementary irrigation at all. Mm. Um, and it just goes and goes and goes. And the way I've used it, I've, I've planted it throughout the nature strip so it's got, 
it's got quite a presence when it's in flower. Um, but I've also used it in the front garden um, to tie in the two areas together and bring a bit of continuity um, because the front nature strip is all indigenous plants to the area. Um, so to try and to try and make the two spaces kind of call to each other, mm. um, I've used that so, as, as so a... So that one is indigenous to your Yes, area. yeah. Yep. Nicotiana suaviolans is its name. Mm. Um, it's not perchance scented, is it? Because some of the white-flowered Nicotianas are. It's very, very lightly scented. Mm. Um, you do have to basically stick it up your nose yeah, to, 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 to catch to, it. To get it, mm. yeah. Um, but like, like a lot of the other Nicotianas as well, it's pollinators are, are moths um, and the way the flowers catch the moonlight when the moon is full or it's a bright night um, it's it's got to be seen to be believed you know it's really quite impressive um, and I've got a whole lot of this uh, stiper flowering in the nature strip at the moment I've been going for like a like a local grassland look and it's uh, Ostrostiper rudis subspecies rudis and it gets these gorgeous Gorgeous flower yeah, heads okay, on it. Okay. Um, so yeah, when they catch the light really well, they too. they do the yeah. the afternoon sun especially mm. when the awns get lit up. It's mm. it's really really gorgeous. But it, that beautiful way to catch the wind as mm. well and create yeah. a bit. That's of That's nice thing about some of those grasses too because they are a moving feast in the garden. They're not Absolutely just static they plants. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a very delicate one. That's going to catch the slightest breeze. Yeah, it is. It's really gorgeous. Um, and they're they're quite upright as well. Um, but to get to get an effect with them, you really do need to plant a lot of them. So I've got I've got about a hundred um, in the nature strip, um, and and they're all in. And you haven't had the council moment. tell you to come along and cut your grass. Well, no, no. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> my, does, your, my, does your council encourage nature? They do I mean, absolutely. Do they do. Yeah, yeah, they're ve- yeah, they're very good. They've got guidelines on the internet. I'm um, I'm in reservoir, so it's Darabin Council, mm. um, and. They their policy is that if you if you read the guidelines and stick to them, you don't have to apply for a permit. Um, and if you do want to put in a little bit of paving or something like that, or you know a little a little bit of toppings to put the bins on or something like that, then you do have to you do have to apply. Um, but there's no application fee or anything like that with them, so they're one of the more friendly councils mm. um, that are really encouraging. They've there. actually done a lot of fantastic things. I mean, I mm. know they they were spending time also trying to encourage wildlife corridors. Yep. You know, so yeah. they're, they're really on the ball. Yeah, yeah come on, Macedon Rangers, get your act together. <laughs> <laughs> they're actually telling somebody to remove a nature strip garden at the moment. Is that right? Oh, are they? Uh, yeah, okay. uh, a certain lovely lady that comes in here and does uh, 3CR talkback actually designed. Oh. And the council is now telling her it, that, it's go. it, that it'd have to go and she spent thousands of dollars on this. And, and she's on a little dirt road, no traffic, hardly any foot traffic. Yeah. So and the council are telling her that, you know, it's a, it's a hazard. Well, it's uh, a chance to educate the council. It's well, going to be a I'm fight, hoping, but it is a chance. Yeah, it's well, an I'm hoping this one will, in fact, if educate If it's the them. same one that I know about, mm. then that, that's exactly what they're doing, is mm. they're now talking to the council and mm. they're getting... Um, They've had various experts talking yeah. to them and, and they're trying to persuade the council that this is a good thing, mm. not a bad thing. But imagine getting that letter from the council saying yeah. it has to be removed Remove. by the X date yeah. mm. uh, or we'll come in and remove it for you and, and charge you for it. it. Mm. Yes. Mm. I mean, really, what sort of heavy-handed attitude yeah. that is. I mean, mm. it's just not ridiculous. Yeah. There's uh, been a big brouhaha up in Brisbane the last few weeks as well and I know that Jerry Colby-Williams is now involved with the Brisbane City Council to rewrite the guidelines for nature strip mm. gardens mm. Um, mm. because there were quite a 
few people who were having them, you know, being given notices to remove them, or you know, they would be given I a bill. I think there was the one council. who'd been doing it for twenty years. And yeah, and then all of a sudden, they so just how got risky is that? Yeah, yeah. All those people <laughs> that have hurt themselves on that nature strip. Yes. Mm. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, all right, let's go to uh, Jill, who's in East Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Pam. Um, I've got a um, citrus gem, little ruby, the native lime tree, and uh, on that really hot, hot couple of days in September, the leaves got scorched. So um, it's facing north and in a protected spot. You know, it won't get any um, frost or anything on it. So now I'm, I've planted a kangaroo apple to the west of it, thinking, well, that'll shield it. Is that the right thing to do? Um, look, I, where I've got mine planted, it very much is is shaded from the afternoon sun mm. and I deliberately planted it in that spot. Um, so I, it's certainly shading, but mm. kangaroo apple... Yeah, that's, it'd probably do it. The trouble with the kangaroo apple growing. is they come up and then they go down again. Yeah, so they're not fast. long-lived, but it would give um, <laughs> some shelter for it and its root system wouldn't yeah, be too invasive. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I've put one of the little native limes in as well and mine's in semi-shade and, mm. and I did that because I didn't want it to catch the frost where mm. up at Macedon mm. uh, and it seems to be quite happy there. Mm. So it does seem to be to be one of those citruses that actually probably goes against normal practice. It's a rainforest understory mm. plant in yes. its natural habitat, right. so it, it can well, take a lot of shade. People yeah. that sold it to me at the garden show said that it, w- it grew in in the um, red soils of the outback, so that's well, why I put it where I did. Yeah, Jill, but, look, the, it's possible that it might be um, because some of them are actually crossed with, with some of the desert limes. That's right, yeah. So it depends exactly which, which lime it is. So yes. they may, it, what they've told you may well be quite true, but it still doesn't mean that they don't need perhaps a bit of shade, in, yeah. you know, if, it, oh, to I be able to grow well. I think I've done the right thing, yeah. Well, certainly I've I've got two varieties uh, and they're both growing in semi-shade and doing really well. Okay, um, I might, well, I might might even move it, but yeah, that's quite pretty. And I've got a whole lot of other native plants that I bought when I did a display of native plants to go with the um, plants of the First Fleet. And then I had, you know, um, New South Wales and Victorian native plants, you know, as a contrast. Fantastic. Out of those from the first fleet. Um, and, um, yeah, so I'm going to plant all those now. So I do have plenty of sunny space for those, and I'll put that in the semi-shade, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's excellent mm-hmm. Good idea. idea, Jill. Yep. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Bye. That number, if you'd like to give us a call, 94190155. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show in the studio now. We're back to our, our normal <laughs> little group, which is uh, Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, Penny Woodward, who's all things edible, and James Beatty, who's a researcher from ABC Gardening Australia. So uh, we're running through until 9.15. If you'd like to jump on board and ask a question, do give us a call. We'll go next to uh, Tony, who's out in Glen Waverley. Morning, Tony. Uh, good morning. Good morning, panel. Uh, I was wondering if I could put a question to Stephen, uh, yeah. being a cold climate uh, plants man, whether he could give me some advice on grafting beeches, because I've just grafted about 20 and um, put the Sions on in September as they're just about to explode, Yeah. put them on the beaches in a cleft graft, and uh, they put a bit of wax over and put a plastic bag over them and um, 
the buds all swell up, they start to come out, and then they die. I'm just wondering what you could tell me what I'm doing wrong, Stephen. Well, beeches aren't the easiest thing to graft in the first place. Um... I got about two. I got the dwarf beech and the fastigiate, but I didn't get any of the golden or the others. Mm. Um, Look, I think you've been doing more or less the right things, uh, I have to say. Hmm. Um, um... Should I strip the bottom leaves off the beech before the buds explode or leave them on? I would leave the bottom leaves on until you know that the graft is starting to move. Should I do the grafting earlier? I think that may be part of it. I mean, a little bit earlier might be a good idea. September might be just running that tiny bit late, particularly since we had an early uh, spring hit this year. Uh Uh, So maybe start them a little bit earlier. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly a challenging plant to graft. I mean, I'm, I'm not very good with them. Uh, I leave them up to the experts and the dandenongs that graft beaches very well, uh, and I buy their stock um, because I find them quite difficult to get, a, a partially due to the fact that they're, they're quite hard to get a match-up between the cambiums because they've got a very thin cambium. Oh. And so it's got to be really precise. You've got to be very precise when you're grafting beaches. So you've got to get a very close match up of the cambiums to make sure that you get that flow through. Is it the cleft graft or the side graft better? Uh, I would probably go for a cleft graft myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, there are the issues of getting that cambium layer just so. Good stuff. Okay, thanks very much. All right, best of luck with it, Tony. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Right, next up we have uh, Gloria, who's out in Bulleen. Morning, Gloria. Oh, good morning. I'm just taking the strawberry out of my mouth so no. I can talk to you. <laughs> Homegrown, um, I hope. Sorry? Homegrown. <laughs> Unfortunately, not there up yet. Okay. Uh, the penny. Um, yes, Gloria. I was just thinking, I spoke to you before I went to Ireland. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> How was the trip? Oh, amazing. I mean, Ireland is, you'd fall in love with Ireland, really, would It is you? beautiful, yes. Uh, I'll just say one thing about gardens, because we had a conversation about gardens. <clears throat> I just found the whole country was one big garden. Oh, indeed, yes. And North County Clare, I felt, totally fell in love with around the Burren. But anyway, you know, I could wax lyrical about that. That's not why I'm... Look, I've got a balm of Gilead that someone yep. has given me. Um, <clears throat> it's a bit of a bully, yep. as you probably know. But um, And it's. I'm just wondering how to prune it. Uh, as hard as you like, whenever you like. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So, just... so it's we're talking about Cedronella canariensis. So mm. I assume that's still the botanical name. Um, mate, <laughs> yes, know that. yes, this yes. week. Yeah, they keep changing the names. I haven't checked that one recently, but I okay. assume that's still accurate. Um, and they grow with very long, beautifully strongly scented <clears throat> sprays. So yes. the branches, big bushes. Yes. Um, but look, you can you can hack into them any time you want. Okay. I, I wouldn't cut them down to just a stump. But I, you know, anything much beyond that, and they will, they'll regrow. Say so, uh, about a foot. Yeah, you can do that if you want to. In the old yep. scale. Yep. And they, I've noticed it suckering a little bit, which is probably okay where I've got it. Too. Yeah, and they're not, they're not that hard to, you know, you just chop them off with a spade. So Sorry. You just, if you've got a sucker coming oh. up, you just put a spade in and chop it off. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they're not not these ones that just take off all over the place. Yeah, you should no. be fine. All right, but they are vigorous growers. So they certainly are, and beautifully and, centred, and love to be the centre of attention. Yes, just boom, yeah. there it is. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. Great show always. Okay, thanks. thanks. Good Bye, on Penny. you, Gloria. Bye.
James, you mentioned or you dropped uh, the hint, I think mainly for yourself, that there's some projects you need to get on with. Do you want to tell us what uh, you're planning? Uh, pulling up a concrete slab and moving a shed and, and trying to extend the veggie garden, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> and if you announce it on radio, you might actually do yes. it. Yes, yeah, we're, we're, right. we're going to hold you yeah. to it. Yeah, now that you've yeah. done it, we want to report on a regular basis. <laughs> you know, so yes, there you go, you're now obliged. <laughs> It's just one of those one of those projects I've been intending to do for years, but never really have found the time. But um, have have made a point of of not lining up any extra work or anything too taxing. Um, now that now that the productions come to an end for Gardening Australia for the year, to try and allow me the time and try and find the impetus somewhere to <laughs> to get it done. Because once it's done, I'll basically I'll basically triple my vegetable garden growing space in my backyard. Now so, that is worthwhile. Yeah, it's really worth it. It yes. is. It is. I've been quite remiss in the last couple of years, I think. So it's definitely the time. So I gather your your backyard gets gets quite a bit of sunshine. Yeah, it's north facing, so mm. it's it's a good spot to be growing to be growing veggies. Yeah. Um, so is there still room for the shed relocated, or does the shed have to go? I'm just going to kind of chop the shed in half because it's it's got a it's it's a, a garage shed with a workshop on the side of it. Um, oh, okay. So I'm actually just going to get rid of the workshop, um, right? And that's going to that's just going to let in a lot more sun in winter. It's a really productive space in the summertime because the sun is so high in the sky. But in the winter time, when the shadows are really exaggerated, um, it's it's a bit of a dead zone mm. um, in a large portion of the backyard. So once I get rid of this this part of the shed, then. It should be good. It should be really, really productive in the winter time as well. So fantastic! Yeah, it's it's got to happen. Yeah, just seen someone's asked me to repeat the two plants that I've got on the nature strip. Right. Um, the 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 spear grass, the species of stiper, is um, Ostrostipa rudis, subspecies rudis, and the uh, the tobacco was Nicotiana suaviolens. Um, which is quite a, quite a good name. It's like the James Bond of the, yes, of the yes, nicotine right. world. Yes. Very <laughs> suave. Definitely shaken, not stirred. Um. <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, Stephen, let's get oh, back to some yeah. of your plants. All right. Now, another one I brought along this morning, which I'm, I'm absolutely in love with, is a little species hydrangea. Um, and this goes under the rather dreadful name of Hydrangea scandon subspecies Lucluiensis. It apparently comes from the island of Yakusima, and it's a little dwarf shrub. It only grows to probably 60 centimetres by a little wider, nice little sort of compact but arching shrub, not a blob. It's got a little bit of sort of form to it. Um, and it has tiny little lace cap flowers with only two or three uh, bracted sterile flowers around each head. It's in flower in late spring, so it's one of the first of the hydrangeas to come into bloom. Uh, and they're just tiny little white flowers scattered over the whole bush. Uh, its foliage is a nice bright green, uh, and it's one of the few hydrangeas that I grow for its autumn colour mm. because its foliage goes really pretty colours before it sheds in mm. the autumn. So you get sort of oranges and reds and yellows and things through it. Uh, it would make an ideal pot plant because it is nice and small. Uh, like most hydrangeas, it does better in a semi-shaded aspect. Um, it's not as probably as water-hungry as the classical macrophylla-style hydrangeas, uh, but it still needs adequate moisture. Um, it would probably one of those things that would grow really well in one of those water well pots actually if you've got mm. one of those sitting around that you want mm. to put something into uh, this little hydrangea could do the job quite well um, and it's so unlike the big sort of 
oh. over the top. It's not sort of buffy. garden hydrangea. It's not buffy at all. <laughs> buffy is a good name for the big hydrangeas. I sort of quite like them in a sense because they are buffy. Well, I mean, they fill up a space. Yeah, and they flower for ages. Yeah. And you've got these great big heads that you yeah. can you can do cathedral arrangements with. You know, <laughs> it's, you know they're just so in your face. Um, but this one is just such a tiny, oh, it's, dainty, it's sweet little plant. Love it. Uh, and I just think it's just charming. So hydrangea scandens subspecies Lucluiensis, and I think it's. Something like L-U-I-K-U-I-E-N-S-I-S or something like that. Um, uh, If people want to see it, actually, I did put it up on my website a couple of days ago with an image. Uh, So if you go into stephenryan.com or whatever it is... um, uh, you'll find me. Just Google it. Um, Don't you know your web address, Stephen? <laughs> I think it's Stephen Ryan Gardens, but I'm not dead sure. If you type in Stephen Ryan, it comes It'll up. It'll come up. Okay. You know, so it does come up. Uh, and I just just uh, posted about it the other day because I've got some nice little plants of it coming along, so they're ready, virtually ready for sale. The one in the garden at the nursery is in full bloom at the moment, looking really sweet. Um, so it's a really interesting plant, and it shows – the diversity within the genus. I mean, mm. we all tend to get a conceived idea of what a particular genus looks like. Mm. So with hydrangeas, yes, it's big and buffy. Yep. Uh, with Daphne's, it's pink and smelly. Uh, you know, there, there's all these sort of preconceived ideas and we sort of don't realise what diversity can be within the genus. And it's plants like that that sort of show you how diverse and how interesting a potentially sort of ordinary group of garden shrubs can be. Yes. You know, so you've just got to get out there and look for some of the interesting ones, the different ones. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that's that little hydrangea I brought along today. Yep, yep. For the sake of balance, Penny, you should mention your uh, your web address as well. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, yes, well, yes. I hope you can remember it. Mine's, mine's just pennywoodward.com.au. Nice so and easy. <laughs> easy. And the garlic one is australiangarlic.net.au. Okay, totally good. Fantastic. That's my two websites. Good, good. Excellent. Oh, you got two. <laughs> <laughs> That's because she wears two hats. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> okay, let's go to Val in Vermont. Hi, Val. Hi, Pam. Hi, panel. Hello. Um, Hello. I'm going. I'm ringing about my tomato plants and my golden nugget. None of them have got flowers. Well, neither of mine. No, <laughs> neither of mine yet. Yeah. Um, look, mine had flowers two or three weeks ago, but they don't have flowers at the moment. And it's just because of the weather. It's because it's got cold and oh. it's too cold for them to be producing decent flowers. Mm. So we've got a couple of 30-degree days coming up mm. during the week. They'll start growing flowers. Oh, that's all right then. Yeah, um, it's those overnight lows you've got to watch out yeah. for. We've been getting 10 degrees. Yeah. In yeah. Take the electric blanket weeks, out so, for yeah. them. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, they must... That must be a real shock to them. <laughs> yeah, they're sulking. Yeah, they are. It's just it's just a matter of once the weather settles into place, then things will start to do their normal stuff. It's just that we've been getting so many highs and lows. I mm. mean, we've got really early heat. You know, we had that mm. uh, talk before about the, the lime getting burnt by the early mm. sun. Mm. Now, it may not have been burnt by that same intensity of sun if it had happened mm. in December yeah. instead yes. of in September. Yeah. Uh, yes. And so it's the same with all of our veggies. They're all going... They're all going, oh, is it winter, is it summer, is it spring? We yeah. don't know what it is, so they're just sitting there waiting. My rhubarb leaves got burnt. Yeah. Mm. I've yeah. never seen them get burnt like that so before. The new growth is so tender. That's yeah. right, and so instantly, boom. off with gradually yeah. increasing temperatures. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, so yes, yeah, so it's all that soft growth. So, yeah, so the converse is that when it gets cool like it has been over the last week or so, which I've been enjoying even if my tomatoes haven't, um, yeah, they're going to sit and sulk for a while. And then, well, that's handy to note. Now, the other thing was, 
I've got a brand new bush that's gone, really has got out of hand. I haven't... Uh, Naughty you. I know, I know, I know. You know, you should be watching your baronia. No, my my bron- mother always pruned hers no, by... No, did I say baronia? Yeah, you said baronia. Lavender. Oh, lavender. Oh. Uh, well, <laughs> different plants, same issue. Yeah. <laughs> both perfume. Yeah, and both need pruning. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, this year I didn't get out in the most cold winter days, you know, but anyway, I'm wondering now if I cut it back till it's got a little bit of green showing, which will be cutting it back quite hard, will that get rid of the woodiness? Like, will it start to shoot where it's woody? Do you know what lavender it is? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> One that you obviously are it, struggling to answer. It, it, if it's English lavender, I wouldn't do that because mm. it quite often doesn't reshoot from um, from uh, the woody, from not the even woody if, bit. Not even if it's got a bit of green showing. If you leave a little bit, but look, they're a bit temperamental. I have found that whack in know, a lot um, of cuttings. Yeah, if you're going to take yeah. them yes. out. Oh yeah. So yeah. if it's a French lavender, you can sometimes go a bit harder, but um, and the but the Really, none of them like being cut back into the old wood. And so if you really want to cut hard, I would do exactly what Stephen said, which is to take cuttings. And now's a good time to take cuttings. Oh, well, that's what I'll do. So if you do kill it, you've at least got some new plants coming yes, up. I yes, mean, yes. once they're let go for a, a, yeah, a few years, woody, you're really, really better off planting yeah, a new exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they do grow so fast. So they do. It, it's not like you're losing much. Yeah. No. And um, when do you prune them? Again, it depends which one you've got. <laughs> um, the English lavenders you prune once they've finished flowering, and then when you prune them, you also tip prune at the same time. The um, Italian lavenders and um, Spanish lavenders you do the same thing. You prune them really. They have a, a couple of seasons of flowering, so you finish you prune them when they finish flowering. The French lavenders can flower nearly twelve months of the year. So I actually prune mine when my other lavenders are looking fantastic. So I get I prune the French lavenders when I've got lots of other flowers in the garden, and that's usually in spring, um, and that then means that they have lots of nice new growth in autumn and right through winter. Well, I think I might have a French one because I have flowers all the year. Okay, it, that sounds like a French one to me. Mm. Yep. So you can prune that now, um, but take your cuttings first. Oh, good. All right. Thanks, panel. Hey, okay. no no worries. Well. As usual. Okay. Oh. Bye. I had something very exciting happen yesterday that I was going to tell you about. I went out and found that my Cavendish banana has a flower on it. <gasps> ah, <laughs> which means I'm yes, about to... There's sudden <laughs> shock with, from the whole room. We're all, we're all terribly so excited. It's been in for two years um, and it gets terribly damaged by wind because mm-hmm. I've got it on the north side of the house, So, but it's in an. Exp- it was the only spot I had was an exposed position. Mm-hmm. So the leaves get shredded all the time. So it doesn't look beautiful mm-hmm. except very occasionally when... Yes, nice new wind. leaves. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's suddenly putting up a flower in the mm. cent- in the centre. Wow! And being a it's a it's a dwarf Cavendish, so it's instead of being I've seen them um, sort of they yeah, above be, the roof. Yeah, <laughs> up above the roof. It's actually only at at sort of single story roof level. So I've seen them two stories yeah. high. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited. So I'm hoping that the next thing that will happen once it's pollinated, is we, that we I'll expect get to see bananas come into yes. the studio. Then we want to see one of these. We need but they proof. They take so long. Yeah. Once they, you know, <laughs> but so long to grow and then to ripen. So it'll be in about twelve months' time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Where's a banana. banana? Look. <laughs> but it's one of those things that I think that sometimes 
sometimes we lose touch with is gardeners and the idea of having instant gardens. And, oh, yes. You know, that landscapers mm. are expected to have beautiful gardens immediately. Is that sometimes things take time. and you People get need to remember that you know, gardening is a yeah. process. It's not a yeah. product. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of people are like that. They And mm. I always say to people, if I make it to 80, and I'm hoping to, um, that I'll plant something that takes 20 years to flower because I can. And it yes. would give me something to live for. <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, this instant gardening thing, um, I can sort of understand if your uh, bathroom window is, is being looked in from the next door neighbour's kitchen window and mm. you might need something reasonably quickly mm. to screen yourself. Mm. But in most other cases, nothing needs to be that fast. No. no. In fact, everything in life is so fast. I quite like the fact the garden yes. isn't. Mm. Absolutely. And, and by if- the way, if you've got that bathroom window thing, the best way to deal with that, I reckon, is to walk backwards and forwards in front of it naked a few times. They stop looking. I agree. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, on, on that point. <laughs> Okay, we'll go next to uh, Terry, who's in Cranbourne. Morning, Terry. Oh, good morning. Um, I'm ringing up. Um, my uh, gripe is I have got hardly a bird left in my garden due to oh. these rotten Indian miners. Mm. Um, I was wondering, uh, I noticed you had some people from Gardening Australia on your program this morning. Mm-hmm. Why can't Gardening Australia do some sort of... Um, um, part of their program and lobby the councils to give people like me, you know, some help. I, I know, I, I'm not sure um, what councils do it, but I know some of them do provide traps to residents for things well, like Well, I Indian rang miners. my local council and they said, no, you and have to don't. buy them. It's, it's, well, you, it's, it's, it's different council to council yes, in that case. But what, what I, you know, I, I, I must admit... I I don't I've got uh, like a bottle brush and and some abuse line and things and that round the side of my house but I don't plant native things anymore simply because these dear little birds they come in and these marauding I call them cane toads with wings they come in and they just wait for these little birds to poke their heads out and they kill them they're pretty thuggish aren't they they're they really horrible. they're really not pleasant and, to have you know, around I used to have on an average uh, my garden was full of birds <coughs> Now mm. the only little couple of uh, couple of little birds I've got, I had a pair of doves, mm. and the rotten things must have got one. And now I have to stand outside, and this dear little lone dove comes down to my feet and has a little feed. Yeah. yeah, look, it's a real problem. We in our area, we um, we started seeing Indian miners coming in, and and after doing a bit of research on it, I found that the thing that Indian miners like is open spaces. Mm. So I that was one of the reasons why I started planting much more densely. Mm. And although um, some of my neighbours have some Indian miners, I don't get them in my garden. Yeah, it's a good. Um, it's it's so densely planted. Mm-hmm. There are so many spaces places for yeah. the. For mm. the I don't see a lot of miners in my garden yeah. either which is very dense well, but I do get plenty as, of blackbirds. Yeah. Yeah. As you can imagine in, in where I live there's so much development now yeah, I know. Yes, and everything's I know. being knocked down yep. yeah, and you're losing and, um, all the trees. Uh, and I, I must admit I do still have my, my family of magpies come in Actually, yeah. Some of the bigger birds the they house. can cope mm. yeah. um, and they, they, they sort of um, they keep them at bay a little bit but um, it's just such a shame I used to walk outside and my back garden was just Birds, birds, mm. birds, and now, mm. no, all the little, even even though I you know the little sparrows are not native birds, I used to have them all around my garden, and it was such mm. a pleasure. Mm. And now, um, you know, there, there's just 
it's just, it's just been decimated. Mm, the rotten yeah. things, they just come and, and they're so cunning. Yeah. You know, they, if in, they see you, they'll sit on the fence. Yeah, t- Terry, I think in Canberra they've actually, I was reading somewhere, they've actually got a bounty mm-hmm. on yes. them and they're having a really concerted effort to, to get rid of them because they're causing well, so many problems. Um, thank you for uh, listening to me. It's my pet gripe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been allowed to air it now, <laughs> so that's you know, good, Terry. I have, I have, it is my pet gripe. And one lady told me, she said she bought a slingshot yeah. and she yep. filled it with gravel yep. and pelted them with gravel. But, you know, uh, they're so... Plays merry hell with your lawnmower later. <laughs> well, to be perfectly honest, I I did get on the computer and they, when it said the best thing, you know, to, to get them to make them stay away mm. is to have a cat or a dog in your garden. I thought, well, that lets... I haven't got a dog and you're not allowed to let your cat out. So that lets that, lets that out. But they did say if you can get them in the trap and then you take them and you... You, you cover them with a blanket and you turn the exhaust on in your car and gas them. But then you've got to get rid of the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you and don't need a mini Auschwitz in the back of your garden no, either. No. That, no. that all sounds a bit macabre to me. Well, yeah. I, you know something? I think I got, I've got that desperate. I think I could really do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the other thing I was just going to add is that um, prickly bushes do mm. afford um, cover. For your little birds. Yes, and but the minute they fly out of the yes. prickly bushes, they're gone. Yes. The damn things, pardon me. No, the, no. The jolly things, they know they're in there mm. and they wait. Yes. And, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a very I, sort of a keen gardener and I, and I love my garden and I used to love going out in the morning and sitting out in my back patio with a cup of tea surrounded by my birds. Yeah. Now I've got one. Yeah. Okay. Well, sorry about that, Terry. And thank you for raising it, though, uh, but Terry. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that someone like Gardening Australia could do some sort of program on it. All right, I look into it, Terry. I promise. I'm sorry for ranting on. No worries. That's fine. Thank okay. you. Bye. 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 We have to go. We do have to go. We've run out of time. Um, But, of course, we will be back again next week. A big thank you to the whole panel who I dragged in early this morning. So they've done a mammoth job, um, including uh, Jen, who's been handling all the calls and all the uh, ins and outs of the studio. So a big thank you to everyone. But, of course, listeners, we'll be back at 7.30 next week. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.